This is Macro Horizons, episode 177, Running of the Bears, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 27th. The pendulum of sentiment has swung from the hawkishness that got tens to 350 to the latest pit as the benchmark grinds back toward a two-handle. Even Poe would be scared of these markets. Now, where did Ben and Powell go with that Amontillado? Just a few more bricks. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, Powell was once again the star of the show. Following last week's FOMC rate decision, in which the chair came out with a decidedly hawkish stance, to say nothing of the fact that the Fed moved 75 as opposed to the 50 basis points, that at one point prior to the last CPI print had been the consensus, the Fed also emphasized the importance of normalizing rates, both from the perspective of longer-term price stability, but also to encourage the correct level of demand in the labor market. Powell then subsequently followed up with a congressional testimony that introduced the idea that a recession certainly is a possibility, and engineering a soft landing is, quote, very challenging. The resulting price action was initially a sell-off that brought 10-year yields as high as 350, and subsequently a rally that saw 10-year yields as low as 3%, putting two-handle tens decidedly on the radar. In the interim, we had several auctions, including the $14 billion 20-year, which was taken down with relative ease, certainly all things considered. There's no question that the primary driver of all financial markets at this moment is calculating the appropriate level of risk to assume that the U.S. is slipping into a recession, or more accurately, the probability that one occurs over the course of the next 12 months. There have been several estimates bantered around, anywhere between 35 and 75 percent in terms of a probability. All else being equal, the Fed would not like to be responsible for the next recession, although Powell has made it very clear that the Fed is down to one mandate of relevance, and that is lowering inflation expectations and returning inflation to the 2% target. It's certainly striking that while a hawkish monetary policy stance would intuitively push rates higher, the acknowledgement of the risks associated with said hawkishness were ultimately 
responsible for pushing rates lower. So the Fed didn't necessarily change its stance, rather a more thorough explanation of the risks, such as that given by Powell to Congress, was ultimately responsible for shifting sentiment in financial markets. The shape of the yield curve responded accordingly, flattening in the run-up to the FOMC, re-steepening a bit as Treasuries sold off, and then subsequently re-flattening in the week just past. We remain on board with a longer-term flattening and a deeper curve inversion, and also take a reasonable amount of solace in the fact that rates appear to be converging closer to a two-handle than they did in the middle of June. The extent to which the curve can ultimately invert, and more importantly, the duration of that inversion will be very topical in the weeks ahead, especially in the run-up to the next FOMC meeting. In this context, we're biased for twos tends to drop below zero with an initial target of 9.7 basis points and for such a move to be sustained in the run-up to and even through the July FOMC meeting. After all, the Fed has committed to at least delivering 50 basis points next month, if not putting another 75 basis point hike on the table. So the week of the Fed was an unequivocally hawkish one. We got 10-year yields up to 350. Two's not far behind that. But this week, it was the reverse. Powell's semi-annual testimony to Congress was interpreted as much more cautious than what we heard at the meeting itself. And now there's growing questions on if the Fed is actually going to deliver on what it's promised, given all the worries about a recession. And now tens have fallen back to effectively 3%, a 50-bit round trip. Yes, it has been a remarkably choppy period in terms of price action in the treasury market. If nothing else, our call does find a bit of solace in the notion that, at least for the moment, all yields appear to be converging at a level that is below 3%. Now, time will tell insofar as it relates to the performance of risk assets and whether or not that will ultimately serve as a deterrent for the Fed to deliver on its full tightening cycle. I'd add a nuance to your observation, Ben, regarding the hawkishness around the FOMC and then the subsequent tone of the chair's testimony in front of the Senate Banking Committee. Specifically, Powell was unquestionably hawkish with the 75 basis point hike and subsequent press conference, but I'll argue that he was not any less hawkish when he spoke in front of Congress, rather that he took the time to articulate the downside risks associated with the degree of hawkishness that the Fed is now engaged in. Said differently, he acknowledged the fact that the Fed might inadvertently hike so far that it tips the U.S. economy into a recession. And implicitly, and this is, I think, where the real nuance comes in, Powell's okay with that. And a big reason why Powell and presumably the Fed more broadly is okay with that is the current state of the labor market and more importantly, from an inflationary perspective, nominal wages that continue to climb at an impressive rate. 
By many measures, the jobs market is too tight, and Powell has gone as far to say that he would be comfortable with a modestly higher unemployment rate, something I think the argument could be made that we're starting to see within the initial jobless claims figures. This past week, initial filers rose again to their highest level since January of this year, and that inflection has been gradual thus far, and presumably it's that type of modest increase in unemployment that the Fed is pursuing, if only to prevent a wage inflation spiral. So with this backdrop, while yes, back-to-back quarters of negative real growth would technically be a recession, in the current environment, nominal output is still very strong. The fact that real growth is negative is simply a result of the deflator. This, combined with the state of the jobs market, is the main reason why the Fed optically doesn't seem to care that we're going into a recession. On the topic of deflator, have you seen the equity market? I try not to look. And at this point, you're not alone. The reality is that equities continue to come off the highs, and the Fed, consistent with the notion that they're willing to accept a slowdown in the real economy, appears content to see asset valuations drift lower. Now, Ben, you made a great point about the Fed wanting to see a higher unemployment rate in this environment. My concern, and I think it's one that is shared by investors in the treasury market, is what we're seeing is the beginning of the fallout from monetary policy tightening that has occurred thus far, or rather the removal of accommodation. And the open question is, has the FOMC calibrated the removal of accommodation appropriately? I'm very confident in the Fed's ability to increase the unemployment rate from 35 to 4.5. I'm far less confident in their ability to stop the increase at 4.5. And that's really been something that's dominated the conversations we've had with clients this week. Whereas not all that long ago, the criticisms pointed at the Fed were more of the behind-the-curve variety, not doing enough to fight inflation, they should go by 50, they should go by 75 now the narrative has swung sharply in the other direction. Maybe they're being too aggressive. After all, none of the tightening they've executed so far has flowed through with any material impact on the inflation data. And so the notion that the Fed should be more patient in giving the data the opportunity to respond without over-tightening resonates. But the difference between should and will, I think, is very important in this context and is why we still have the curve back in positive territory, but still very, very flat. And we would expect that curve flattening bias to continue. A dip below zero on twos, tens once again for a more sustainable inversion remains our baseline assumption for the period between now and the July FOMC meeting. In terms of this particular rate hiking cycle, there are two things to keep in mind that might help inform expectations going forward. First, Ben, as you point out, there is a significant lag between monetary policy action and when the fallout is evident in the economic data. Second, the type of inflation that is currently making its way through the U.S. economy and to some extent the global economy is not the type of inflation that resulted directly from an accommodative monetary policy stance. Instead, it can be attributed to dislocations created by the pandemic, as well as very large fiscal efforts on the part of Washington. 
So with this backdrop, we continue to think that the Fed looked at the inflation environment, looked at what the market was pricing in in terms of how aggressive they needed to be to offset inflation and said, oh, we don't want to be in the business of buying bonds. We don't want to keep rates at zero. So we're going to opportunistically take this window to begin the process of normalizing rates. Now, our baseline assumption remains that the Fed is going to continue to hike rates until something breaks. The biggest unknown at this moment isn't what's going to break, but rather how broken does it need to get the Fed to change course. And the way you characterized the Fed as taking the opportunity the market presented in delivering that 75 basis point hike is important to consider in the other direction as well, especially now that we've seen the euro dollar and Fed funds futures markets move to reflect the expectation that policy rates are going to be coming down in the later part of 2023, early 2024. It was only last week that we saw some forward contracts in the one-year, one-year space reach 4%. Now those are back down to 350, 360. So the moderation of assumptions of how high terminal will ultimately be given all this recessionary worry, opens the door to the inverse of the reaction function that we talked about when the Fed was getting ready to hike, which is that while the market can allow the Fed to hike and hike for the Fed, the market can also force the Fed to ease by pricing in rate cuts further out the curve that, if aren't ultimately delivered, would push financial conditions even tighter. And in the current environment with the S&P 500 in a bear market, that's coming from a particularly troubling departure point. Well, Ben, as the classic adage goes, the Fed hikes, the market eases. I think that this particular episode is somewhat complicated given the relevance of inflation, not only to the Fed, but also given the outright amount of consumer price inflation there is in the system, it has become very politicized. So in that context, the period between now and the midterm elections, I think will be very challenging for the FOMC. They're going to need to continue to deliver something in terms of rate hikes, and a moderation of the pace of increases could be seen as politically unattractive. And I just want to reiterate something, Ian, that you and I have emphasized previously about this hiking cycle in particular. And that is, given the aggressiveness that the Fed has set out in raising rates, we've gotten a half-point hike, a 75-basis point hike at consecutive meetings following the initial liftoff, Powell has now afforded the FOMC the flexibility to be quote-unquote dovish while still raising rates. So even a slower pace of hikes at 50 basis points every meeting would be interpreted as acknowledging the market's response to the rate hikes and offering a less aggressive stance in the slower removal of accommodation. 50 basis points every meeting, 25 basis points every meeting are still multiples of the pace that we saw rates rise from 2016 through 2018, not to mention the fact that the balance sheet rundown is only just beginning and all of those factors will have an accretive impact on the overall economy. So before the Fed will pause, they will move to 25 basis points every meeting or even 25 basis points every quarter. It's that transition that I suspect will be the most relevant inflection point that we see start to be communicated toward the end of this year. So the question then becomes, what does that do to the curve? Is that just a bull steepener or does it imply a lower terminal rate as well, which would suggest a parallel shift lower in rates? Certainly. One or the other. One thing that it doesn't suggest is that we're going to see a straight shot in 10-year yields to the land of the forehandle. 
In fact, what we have seen in terms of price action and the behavior of market participants over the course of the last week implies to us at least that the 3.5% level should function as the effective upper bound for 10-year yields for the bulk of the cycle. Now, in our efforts to be intellectually honest, I'll be the first to acknowledge that I said the same thing at 320 and in terms of the timing about when we might see 320 revisited, 350 rechallenged, or even maybe broken before the end of the year, we've gotten a lot of questions on, now that we've gotten this rally, what's the next catalyst going to be for the next big sell-off? And for better or worse, investors are probably going to have to wait till July 13th when we get June's inflation data. And clearly, any strength there that was reminiscent of what we saw for the last CPI print would be traded as a green light for the Fed to deliver 75 basis points in July, and I would argue maybe even the probability of pricing in 100 basis points. After all, Powell refused to take that off the table in front of the Senate Banking Committee, and given what we saw in the lead-up to the last hike, the market is clearly willing to price more than the Fed has communicated. Granted, that was a lot higher in the S&P 500, but still, something to think about. Not only was it a lot higher in equity valuations, but it was also a lot easier in terms of overall financial conditions. And I think that that's what the Fed is running up against and will ultimately limit their hiking ambitions. What will be more interesting to see is how quickly it all takes to play out. The eagerness with which they communicated via the financial media that the last CPI print was enough to put 75 basis points on the table certainly brought with it a sense of angst in terms of the perception that the Fed acknowledges they might be even further behind the curve than previously assumed. We'll be watching very closely for incoming Fed commentary, not just from the chair, but also from other Fed speakers as monetary policymakers try to recraft the message, at least on the margin, to allow for the amount of flexibility they might want to have embedded in the rate outlook between now and the end of the year. Dare I say some good old-fashioned data dependence? Do I get a write-off for that? No, but we'll give you a credit. I see what you did there. In the week ahead, we anticipate the price action itself will be the big story. We do have several rounds of economic data of relevance, not least of which being durable goods for May that prints on Monday, followed by Consumer Confidence and Case-Shiller on Tuesday. We do have the third revisions to the first quarter's GDP unlikely to be market moving, but the highlight in terms of data will be Thursday's core PCE numbers. As it currently stands, inflation is expected to increase half a percent in the month of May, consistent with the upside surprise realized in the May CPI data. We'll be attuned to any information coming out of the Fed as it relates to an attempt to dial back the Fed's hawkishness. Now, given that Powell has doubled down on the relevance of continuing to normalize rates, we struggle to imagine that the Fed will deliver anything more than a very, very subtle shift as it relates to the pace of rate hikes. But nonetheless, given how topical the issue is at the moment, we anticipate that any nuance offered by the Fed could be potentially market moving. In terms of flows, dip buyers have been conspicuously absent throughout much of 2022. 
Now, the recent 50 basis point rally in tens notwithstanding, we continue to look for evidence that the core buyers from Japan, for example, have re-engaged in an attempt to join the rally in treasuries. Hedging costs have made participation from many Tokyo accounts prohibitively expensive, and given the run in the yen, we don't see that changing anytime soon. If we did see an extended period of stabilization in the yen, that could shift this dynamic at least on the margin and encourage some dip buying. The first leg of the recent rally off the lows has a lot more to do with short covering than it does with accounts actively getting long duration. It's a process of accounts actively going long that we anticipate will bring 10-year yields through 3% and closer to the target of 2.5% that we expect will be realized at some point over the summer months. We'll be the first to acknowledge that this is somewhat off consensus, but not inconsistent with where we are in the cycle, nor inconsistent with the Fed's recessionary warnings. It's tempting to suggest that the holiday-shortened week ahead will limit participation and create a lower volume profile overall. That said, recent summer trading months certainly have not followed that more traditional dynamic, so we're reluctant to anticipate that the week ahead won't be fully staffed nor have full participation and therefore commitment behind any price action that ultimately occurs. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. While the cadence of the long weekends to kick off the summer has been a welcome development in the bond market, we'll take it one step further and suggest mandatory gray dots between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Yellow was never our color anyway. And blue, well, just made us blue. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular 
their investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.